It can sometimes be hard to find fresh, engaging, and practical ways to learn about the Catholic faith that feel relevant to your daily life. That's why Ave Maria Press launched its Ave Explores initiative to help nourish your faith in ways that are meaningful to you. Check out the Ave Explores podcast hosted by Katie Prejean McGrady and make sure to subscribe. You can also sign up for all of the free content at AveMariaPress.com or by following Ave Maria Press on social media. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. In the blink of an eye, digital technologies went from supplemental and exploratory in education to primary and necessary for continuing instruction during a global pandemic. This has been true in higher education as much as anywhere else. But how do you quickly move in-person learning experience into an online experience in an emergency? And then how do you plan for an entire semester of dual-mode instruction with in-person and online education happening simultaneously? And what does this all mean for the present and future of higher education? These are the kinds of questions my guest asks and responds to. He is Elliot Visconsi, Associate Provost and Chief Academic Digital Officer at the University of Notre Dame, where he is also Associate Professor of English. He's here to talk about the quick move to digital instruction in spring 2020, planning for dual-mode instruction in fall 2020 and afterwards, and the role of technology and new modes of digital engagement for higher education, all for the ultimate goal of enriching, enhancing, and delivering transformational learning. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life in collaboration with the Spoke Street Media Network. Elliot Visconsi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lenny. Elliot, you've been the Chief Academic Digital Officer at Notre Dame since 2013. So for the better part of a decade, you've been leading the university in steadily exploring new and emerging educational modalities. But then, of course, in March 2020, the steady part of that exploration went right (laughs) out the window when Notre Dame suspended in-person instruction and put all of its classes online for the remainder of the semester. So at the risk of aggravating some potential PTSD, I thought if you could tell us a little bit about the story of this great effort to establish instructional continuity in spring 2020, it'd be great to hear about it. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for the occasion to, to talk about that a little bit. I, I wouldn't say it was traumatic necessarily, okay. but it was a heavy lift. Yeah, so we were, you know, we were keeping our eyes, as I think many people were, keeping our eyes on the progress of the epidemic then, now pandemic, you know, as early as late January, but really started thinking about what's going to be the impact on Notre Dame in February, as as most college and universities did. I don't think we necessarily anticipated that we would wind up with a systematic shutdown and, you know, pivot to online. But we, we had done, we started planning for all eventualities, seeing the course of the virus. And so when we started, you know, huddling in the kind of emergency response team, we were looking at a number of different options. And some of those options then turned out to be later what we implemented. So how will we de-densify? Will we move some classes online? Will the students stay here? Will the students go home? These kind of questions. And those were being asked by, you know, a whole series of campus leaders. 
my charge at that point is was and, and really remains to think about the learning and teaching components, so not testing or dorm occupancy or anything like that. And we we realized pretty quickly that the burden was going to be universal, that it wasn't going to be a few courses here, large courses only, but it was going to be a systematic pivot. And so a couple of things we did first was to convene a faculty task force, creatively named the Faculty Task Force on Instructional Continuity. <laughs> I know. Sometimes um, you don't have time for the fancy acronyms. You just go, yeah, just call it what it is. Yeah. Usually at Notre Dame, everything has an ND in the right. beginning or the end. And you it's know, endowed, and, and right? This wasn't an endowed pivots, task right. force. Yeah. No, not yet. Yeah, maybe in the future. <laughs> but so we, we knew we needed to have not only the existing governance organizations, but also a lot of really sort of broad representation by the faculty who could say what they were hearing and provide their advice and expertise. So we put that together pretty quickly and we started meeting very, very frequently to identify just sort of the laundry list of problems, like how do you administer an exam? How do you, you know, train people to teach online in two, you know, in a week mm-hmm. or something like that? How do you do the pivot? And that I think, you know, sort of in the moment when you have a sort of an emergency, you everybody knows and understands there's going to be compromises. And so we we knew that we had to just be as systematic as we could and say, how are we going to do this? What are we going to tell the faculty? What are the steps that you know, everybody's going to have to take and what can we sort of, you know, roll out over time. And so it was, we did a lot of that work very quickly. We put on a ton of faculty training workshops, opportunities to collaborate, you know, faculty talk to each other, which was wonderful so that you'd have find, you know, a group in the Department of Chemistry huddled and said, here's how we're going to think about labs suddenly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you put, you put a lot of smart people together under pressure and you find out there are creative solutions. And I was just blown away with the creative solutions that our colleagues sort of came up with at the local level. So we knew we had to do that. There was a huge communications plan about what to do and how to do it and how to get training and how to use Zoom and, you know, uh, what what is Zoom? It's I mean, funny to I, think about that remember, now, right? Like everybody, right? everybody's a savant, but not before. Well, right. I mean, so here's the thing is that we had a non-trivial number of faculty who had never used our LMS right. at all right. and had never and, and only had used Zoom once or twice, if ever. Accidentally, and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so on the, we, on the one hand, we have some real super users who are doing all kinds of cool stuff like yourself. And then we have faculty that are wonderful, committed teachers, but we're not using the technologies at all. And so we had to get them sort of, you know, to there's a steep learning curve. Yes. Just with the basics of how do I use this platform? And then the corollary, of course, is how do I teach well with Uh it? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, and those take a lot of time and patience. And I think the students were very patient, which I'm really grateful for. Do you, I mean, as you move towards the summer, this sort of shifted. So there was the sort mm-hmm. of emergency moment, which you'd been mm-hmm. planning for, for, as you said, for about a month, month and a half in March, whereas pivot everything online really quickly. But then yeah. in the summer of 2020, Notre Dame was one of the very first colleges or universities, major ones to come out and say, we're going to open for in-person instruction in the fall of 2020. But yep. that that required a different kind of planning, especially mm-hmm. from from you and from your office. Everything about really the campus environment had to be reimagined. So the layout of classrooms, 
what could be used as a classroom, dual mode instruction to have students in the classroom while also having students temporarily or for longer periods of time joining virtually, digitally, even down to the point of planning how to account for where every single student sits in a classroom (laughs) for the entire semesters for contact tracing purposes. So what were your goals for creating this new educational environment as you went into fall 2020, which is now kind of informed what's happening in spring Mm. 2021? And, you know, how did you lead your team and the university towards realizing those goals? Yeah, thank you for the question. I, I think the first the first answer is the team, mm-hmm. honestly, that the work that Notre Dame Learning, which is our integrated learning and teaching organization that supports faculty, done and continues to do has been extraordinary. And uh, the depth of commitment and the generosity which with the team has worked with faculty to answer questions, to provide research-based advice, to provide the kind of support and, and training and on just coaching, frankly, that faculty and all the disciplines need has been at the heart of that work, and they deserve enormous credit for that generosity uh, of approach. And so relying on the team and also relying on both faculty and then faculty leadership, so this might be department chairs or, or deans, to really understand that we all, we have to listen first, right? So understand, to understand problems, you first have to listen and, and hear the voice of the student and the voice of the instructor, right? And say, okay, what are we hearing from students? What are we hearing from from our instructors? Where are the you know what are the pain points? What can we solve? And there are things we can't solve, right? So, and that goes backwards as well as forwards. So in spring, we learned a lot about uh, you know remote teaching, emergency remote teaching, and about student feedback and where how students were struggling in some cases. And and then, you know, they might not have a good connection at home. Mm-hmm. They might not have a quiet environment. And so we needed to make sure that we heard that and then wove responses into the planning that we did over the summer to make sure that fall was ready. So, yeah, I mean, boy, where to begin, you know? <laughs> You know, we, I mean, like communications wise, we wanted to make sure there were a lot of resources for faculty that reached them in the way that they're most comfortable. So whether it's on the web or in person in a, in a workshop, a live Zoom workshop, or if it's through one-on-one consultation, we knew that we had to evangelize the yeah. faculty, as it were, and just sort of share best practices and advice. But we also knew that there were a lot of, that, that the move to the residential, the move to campus, sorry, mm-hmm inviting everybody back to campus, we knew that that was going to be add complexity in the sense that, as you said, classrooms needed to be reduced in density. So a 200-person classroom or a 100-person classroom suddenly is available for 40 or 60 people. And so there was a lot of work that went into making sure that those spaces were safe and then also explaining to people how to navigate those spaces safely. So why they're sitting where they're sitting and how they can do group work, which has been a challenge how the instructor can operate in the in the room safely, and then how they can use this dual mode, which, as you said, the idea that some students are in the room and some are remote because they're in quarantine or they have an accommodation, you know, that that that's a heavy lift. Oh yeah. It it's cognitively a lot for the instructor. It sort of doubles the load, the cognitive load for the instructor because they have n number of people in the classroom and then there's a, there's a population on zoom and so you have to really be intentional about making sure you remember they're on zoom 
you call on them if you're in discussion, that they're able to hear everything and and that they feel like they're part of the the classroom and they're not in the, you know, the upper deck in row Z, but they're <laughs> as close to the field boxes as possible, mm-hmm. as it were. Mm-hmm. Right. And the technology worked reasonably, I mean, very well. The OIT did an extraordinary job. Technology worked very well. There were some limitations, right? Just about the environments. I mean, depending on which room you were in and yeah. the classroom and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the technology performed as as expected, but in a very large room, for example, we didn't have mics in the auditoria because those are not rooms that you expect there to be a lot of student feedback and discussions, right. you know? So, right. so the students that the are class, on Zoom, they can hear the instructor, but they can't hear the other students in the room. Correct. So it's only, whereas right. in some of the smaller classrooms that are more of the smart classrooms, they have microphones embedded all throughout. So students correct. who are on Zoom can hear everything that goes on in the room. Yeah. That's right. I mean, the, and then we had, of course, you know, supply chain issues and implementation challenges just with that many rooms to get put up to speed. Cameras so and mics and all that stuff. All, yeah. Everything. And some rooms had mics and some didn't, and right. some cameras didn't come. They were promised for August and they came in October, all those kinds of yeah. things. And so the team, the, the uh, IT team did an extraordinary job and, and continued to do an extraordinary job building out those additional functionalities in the classrooms. And, you know, I mean, the, the dream, the ideal is that there's this kind of seamless experience where whether you're remote or in person, you have sort of the same interaction mm-hmm. experience. It, we didn't get there and that, <laughs> you know, and that that's not reasonable right, that, uh, right. under short duress, you know, right. or with the, maybe with an unlimited budget and unlimited time. But. Yeah. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Elliot Visconsi, Associate Provost and Chief Academic Digital Officer at the University of Notre Dame, where he is also Associate Professor of English. We're discussing digital learning, resilient teaching, the future of higher education. So, Elliot, one of the things that many people have recognized about the pandemic in general is that some of the changes that the pandemic has brought about in all areas of society were changes that were already slowly developing. They weren't necessarily newly introduced, but what the pandemic did is it accelerated the pace of that change. Yeah. And this has been true of education for sure. So you've been formally working on digital education, new learning strategies and the like for years and years now. As you look over the last year and you look a little bit into the future, what were you say, what would you say are the changes that are here to stay? What still needs to be uh, developed further, thought about? What should we leave behind? Just kind of open the open the space for you to talk about those things. Yeah, I mean, there's there are both changes and there are inequities, and mm-hmm. I would maybe think of those in the same vein. Which Great. is that one of the things that the pandemic has done, both in higher ed but also in in education more broadly, is sort of shine a light on uh, social inequities around access to technology, around um, you know access to learning environments, and you know, the the gap between uh, educational flourishing between, you know, wealthy students and students who are, you know, in straightened circumstances is the gap is getting broader and uh, yeah. deeper, unfortunately. And it's it's really heartbreaking to see, you know, just the, the numbers of students who are being left behind by inferior experiences, including, you know, basic infrastructure needs, but also just the inability to really offer 
the kind of education that that we ought to be doing systematically. So the inequities, not just around access to tech, but just sort of in educational inequities in general are are amplifying and have really amplified as a consequence of this. And I, I think that that's a wake-up call. I mean, thinking specifically to higher ed, that we know that we need to do to be more inclusive in a systematic way and make sure that all of our students are getting what, what they need. And we have students in different universities around the world with food insecurity who don't have internet at home. They don't mm-hmm. have, you know, expensive technology. And so they need to be on campus to get access to the hardware and software and the connectivity and the and and most importantly, the human interaction that comes from being part of an educational enterprise with, you know, with faculty and staff and, and fellow students. So I I think those gaps are really have been revealed. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I think it's a urgent sort of moral imperative to edu- to the education, but to higher ed, which I know more about than K to 12, but to make sure that we continue to be committed to addressing inequities, both on campus, but also just even in the classroom, making sure we're attending to the voices of students who might be first generation or might not have access to this, you know, so it's a hidden syllabus as it were. Mm. And students who, you know, are being left behind even on our, our campuses. So that's a that's something I think we has confronted us with the urgent need to to take to take that even more seriously than we have done. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate that because I don't know if if many of us are as aware of that as we ought to be in terms of just the access to education. It's one thing if you can provide mm-hmm. this instruction, but teaching is as much and even more about who's receiving it and how they receive it as it is the one who's putting out what needs to be taught and you know mm-hmm. who's starting the modes of engagement. So that's a crucial issue for us to to think about, as you rightly say. And I'm grateful for you to you for bringing this up to our attention, something that requires more thought going forward. Mm-hmm. I want to also think about like kind of the shift, you know, we became reliant on technology or like yep. exclusively reliant on these technologies for teaching as yep. we, I mean, it's, it's maybe, I don't know when we start thinking about whatever is after when's the right time to do that, but yeah. how do you move from the reliance to the proper integration, mm-hmm. no, either not question. to just cut everything, but also to make use of what we've learned and really integrate that technology mm-hmm. well? Yeah, I, I think one of the benefits of this experience has been to increase the fluency of, of both faculty and students with learning and teaching using technology. And ideally what that will translate into is a much deeper intentionality about the choices we make and the strategies and the tools that we use so that the, the technology sort of vanishes into the background and you say, well, what is going to be best for learning? How can I create a a community in my class that is going to enrich, enhance, and ideally deliver transformational learning for the students? And how can the students be co-creators of that experience? And so the technologies can facilitate that. And we can, you can, you can have, for example, a course that brings together Notre Dame students with students from around, with learners from around the world who are, you know, full-time working adults. And you can convene an intellectual community that's extraordinary 
that is, you know, cross-pollinating. And you could never do that in person because those people live in India or Somalia or wherever. Mm -hmm. And so those are the kind of opportunities where you say, let the technology recede into the background and really focus on the kind of learning that you, you hope to cultivate and sustain. And I think that is one of the things that will be a, a keeper as it were, is yeah. a much greater fluency with and comfort with the affordances of these learning technologies while not making them the reason, you know, the raison d'etre so that you can say, well, we, of course we can do this thing with technology, so therefore we should do it. But simply saying, you know, what is, the, what is best for learning? Yes. Start with that and yeah. then things flow from there. Yeah. Hey, you know, it could be that an online course is the, is the best model for learning because of what the, the, the student needs and where the, the faculty needs and the, the affordances it presents. And it could be that it's not. So I, I think, I mean, I'm very enthusiastic about online learning. Yeah. And I, and I don't in any way see it as antithetical to the mission of a residential university. Yeah. I think they, they fit seamlessly. And it's not like this you know, replacement model or anything. Right. Right. They fit seamlessly together once you remember that the, the goals from on the educational side of the university, the goals are really about creating transformational learning. Mm-hmm. I imagine, I was just thinking that maybe people were having the same kind of issue when like the overhead projector was introduced to a classroom, right? <laughs> like you could just become so enamored with the overhead projector that you just want to do everything with that. But the real question is, how does this facilitate a uh, real rich learning experience. And so you mm-hmm. learn to kind of let it recede into the background, use it in the way that's useful, and then let it stand by the wayside when it's not useful. So it's a much, it, this is a much deeper issue here when you're talking about all these other technologies, but it's the same principle, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, there's a long history of learning technologies and people worrying that learning technologies were going to replace the individual relation mm-hmm. and so on. Like, for example, the textbook, yeah. right? Printed textbooks, a learning technology. And when textbooks started to be introduced, there were people who were saying, that's going to take away the jobs of teachers in, you know, 1803 or something. Right. Oh, you can misuse it. You can use a textbook incorrectly. Yeah, indeed. But it's not the Um, right. It's not necessarily the death of teaching. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing about online learning that is, I think, really important and urgent for us to think about as any higher ed institution is that it allows us to reach more people. Yes. And it, and it allows us to expand the impact that, that a university can have and, and for our students, but also for people that we want to engage with who may not be degree-seeking students. And I, I think that is such an exciting opportunity. And it's a way for a university like Notre Dame to expand our reach, frankly, similar to the work that you guys are doing in this for church life, but to expand the mission of the university and reach people who may not be, you know, degree-seeking Notre Dame undergraduates or professional Mm -hmm. students, so on, but for whom we want to have a relationship and we want to provide them with an educational experience. And, And you can do that and reach a much broader population through online means than you can with, you know, everything being located on the physically on the campus. That's right. That's right. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Elliot Visconti, Associate Provost, Chief Academic Digital Officer at the University of Notre Dame, where he's also Associate Professor of English. We're discussing digital learning, resilient teaching, future of higher education. Elliot, you're a huge advocate of the liberal arts education. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time here talking about that. I want to want to ask you, like, what are the challenges, the opportunities that these new modes of engagement and instruction, digital and otherwise, present for the liberal arts education in particular? 
Yeah, I mean, maybe so. Uh, that's that's a great question. I, you know, I think one of the first things one would do is say, "What do we mean when we say the liberal arts?" Let's do it. You might have an answer. I might have an answer. I'd be curious to hear your answer. You know, what 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 do you define as the liberal arts? I mean, sometimes it's a proxy for the humanities, and mm-hmm. I don't think that's what that's what we mean. Well, I would start with the humanities, but in terms of a, a broad education in the fields, the disciplines of knowledge that have, you know, have a history and been recognized over time is important for developing a well-rounded and well-informed view of the world. How's That's that? That's great. Okay. That works? Yeah. I, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a great advocate for liberal education, which has been you know, sort of a lens through which educators have thought about the the particularly the, in the U.S. the democratic purpose mm-hmm. of higher education and as readiness for, in a political sense, readiness for citizenship, but mm-hmm. then also more broadly, you know, readiness the kind of cross disciplinary readiness to tackle complex questions and to be creative in identifying solutions as you generate new knowledge. And I'm actually very optimistic about the the kind of the value of and the the reception of the principles of liberal education because I think it increasingly both of you look at the mar- you know just sort of markets and hiring and so on the we are increasingly inhabiting a world in which you can't do computer science without understanding humanistic Human ethical frameworks yeah. right you you can't I mean. People do it, but it's increasingly becoming impossible to do that. Right. You have to be able to to understand in an integrated way disciplines that perhaps sometimes were a little bit less disconnected. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I think the place like Notre Dame and other you know practitioners of liberal education, which really insist upon cross disciplinary breadth and and wrestling with serious questions, are going to be sustaining. And I'm relatively less worried about the sort of devolving education into a series of like online training modules, Mm -hmm. because I I think that's training and skill acquisition and so on. And that's valuable and important work. But I I think it's a bit of a false, you know, like, I'm not saying you're doing this, but I think we have this sort of this false dichotomy that's often in the press, which is this sort of, well, there's liberal education, which is sort of elite and, you know, sort of shilly-shallying mm-hmm. and talking about timeless values. And then you have practical career-oriented, you know, disciplines and so on. And I, I genuinely think that's a that's just a false comparison. That's a shorthand that might be helpful for some people who want to sell, you know, yeah. clicks on their website, yeah. but it doesn't reflect the complexity, the energy, and the sort of intellectual creativity and vitality of what's happening on universities that are committed to this sort of integration of, of the disciplines. And that might be engineering, business, and, and English, or it might be computational biologists who are working with somebody in the global affairs school. And that I think that's what's what, what's so great about universities, and I, I'm so I'm really bullish on on that, and I think that thriving universities have that those features. Excellent colleges well, and universities. There the large colleges are, you know, right at the the forefront, the of, point of the spear. Yes, absolutely, right. absolutely. Well, as tends to happen here on our show, we've taken up all of the time much too quickly, and so there's more that we could talk about, but we'll have to bring it in for an ending here. I wonder if we might have a second conversation maybe in a, a few months or, you know, when we're clear of 
well, I don't know if we'll be clear of, but we have a little bit more perspective on kind of the, the rapid changes in especially digital education that the pandemic and other issues have brought on and have a, a sort of update then if you're up for it. Sure, of course. Love to do it. I like to record the agreement on the air so I can hold you to it. How about that? Yeah, that's no problem. I'll do it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Ellie Visconsi, for joining us here on Church Life Today. It's been good to have you. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. The Golden Rule. When you schedule a financial checkup with Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, our people will be helpful and honest and kind. They will look for ways to save you money, and when your checkup is complete, they will send $150 to Redeemer Radio. For more info, visit NotreDameFCU.com elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.